happy place. One, two, three, four, five. And count to five, it's pretty good to be alive. That it's great to be alive. When you play in records with John. Hey, all you lucky listeners out there in Earbud Land, and welcome to another exciting episode of Playing Records with John. I'm your host, John. My guest in this one is Sue Drew, who has been working in the music industry for a few decades now, but not making music, or kind of making music, but more like making music get made. She's been an A&R person, and now she works in music publishing, and she's just generally one of those great enthusiasts who came to my attention because she was the A&R person for Electra Records, who signed my beloved They Might Be Giants to that contract that changed their career back in 1989, and we will talk about that in addition to some other big acts that she's worked with. So I guess I don't really need to say much more about Sue. Uh, She's going to be able to speak for herself. Well, I had studied music as a kid, of course, you know, piano lessons from age five to 10, but then I took up the viola and I actually went to college as a viola major. I was going to become a violist. And uh, while I was in school and isolated in practice room, sawing away on my viola, I realized that I'm a much more social person than this. And this isn't really how I wanted to make my living. So I got it in my head. I would work for a record company, you know, and truly I knew nothing about working for a record company. I knew nobody in the music business. And um, I was going to school in Los Angeles and at USC. And so I just got a bunch of internships working at K-Rock, which was a big alternative radio station, more free form in those days. And, um, you know, different television stations, anything I could do. Uh, And then when I graduated from college with a degree in journalism, because at that time there were no um, music business programs, and I'm very grateful, actually, (laughs) that there weren't, I um, went to work during the day at the Greek theater as the receptionist in the office, but at night I was also an usher at the backstage door. And while I was at the backstage door, I met somebody who was a publicist who was leaving that summer to go work at Epic Records in the publicity department. And later in the summer, she said, we need a second assistant who would like to interview for the job. And so I jumped at the opportunity and I interviewed for the job and it combined you know, my journalism degree, it was in the publicity department and my love of music and my desire to work for a record company, which somehow just magically happened. So that was an era of the height of the music business. We had Michael Jackson Thriller, which was selling about a million copies every week. We had Cyndi Lauper, Culture Club. Our sister label Columbia had, you know, Springsteen, of course, who was really busting through into the the big world, and um, all kinds of fun, exciting things. And every day it was just an adventure. And uh, I mean, I don't think I could have been happier in my life, you know, working at a great company like that. Michael Jackson came to the office. Cindy Lauper came to the office. You know, it's like it was really being in the eye of her, of the music business hurricane. And, and um, I stayed there for a year. Then I went on to Polygram Records, which... Uh, in the radio promotion department as an assistant and doing a little college radio. And I just hated it from the day I started because I absolutely was not a seller. You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm not that type of a personality, a salesperson. So um, about a year into that, I heard about a job opening in the A&R department at uh, Polygram in New York. And I had been living in Los Angeles and, I had it in my head that everyone should live in New York for a year of their life just to have that experience. And so I convinced these two gentlemen after three months of working on them to hire me. And uh, I moved to New York and I started to learn A&R and what it was from these two guys, Peter Lubin and Bill Levinson. 
Peter Lubin's name came up a lot too, looking at this period. Like he signed the Pixies, I believe. He signed the Pixies. He went to Electra, and then he was the one that told Electra about me, and then I got my job at Electra. And so, yes, he, he signed the Pixies, and, um, you know, was a really good A&R man and a really great mentor for me in my early career. Um, while I was at Polygram, I went out one night. I started scouting. And uh, I went out one night and saw an artist called Michelle Shocked. And she was just unlike anybody I had ever seen. And I came back the next day and I told Peter and I tried to explain. I said, I can't explain her because she's different. She's not like anybody. And he said, that's a great answer. That's the right answer. And so because I was just an assistant slash scout, I couldn't take on signing anybody, but he flew to London. He met her. He saw her. She came back and then she actually signed to us. And that's how I learned how to make a record, how to hire a producer, how to hire an engineer, how to listen to songs. And uh, it was an incredible experience for me. That was, um, I'd say, 86, 87. No, I remember when that album came out, what, a, what an outspoken and interesting uh, person she seemed to be. Yeah. Unfortunately, she has since revealed herself to be a very problematic person with some bigoted views. Tonight, people around the world are speaking out against Michelle Shocked. Just couldn't believe it. Yoshi's in San Francisco pulled the plug on the 51-year-old show last night when she launched into a hateful homophobic rant. End of days are here. God hates f Yeah, you heard me right. Please retweet. Lisa Bautista says the stunned audience reacted quickly. And elicited shouts from the audience members, please stop. Staff did their best to quickly silence the hate. Turn on the lights, turn off the microphone, and please get her off the stage. Uh, this cannot happen anywhere, especially in this day and age, and most assuredly in San Francisco. So probably the less said about her, the better. But... I am intrigued by that process you talk about with developing the artist, getting the album ready. Um, I don't know, maybe that still happens, but I feel like nowadays I hear more talk about labels, all the vertical integration and all the pressure that's put on like the week of release, getting the, the, that first week sales, hitting those benchmarks. Um, whereas in the days we're talking about the late eighties and maybe at a label like Electra, especially, there was this emphasis placed on, uh, you know, building an artist up to that point where they're going to have their biggest week. Absolutely. In those days, and particularly at Electra, where artist development was really the philosophy of the label, the, the first record you release was just sort of an introduction. Here's the band, here's what they sound like, this is what they do. If they came from an indie, okay, great. If they had just not been signed previously, fine. The second record, they started to get more alternative radio, more, more press, more notoriety. And by the third record, that's when the company was really ready to put their resources behind this artist. And, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was a real uh, natural sort of ecosystem. And everybody understood this is how it went. You had those outliers. I mean, Tracy Chapman on Electra, that was an outlier. She came out of the box, had a huge single that just touched everybody. And, you know, you couldn't stop that. But the other was more the norm, the development of these artists. And that really was exciting to watch people grow musically and in the, the, you know, notice of the world around them. So yeah, that today is a hundred percent opposite. 180, I guess I should say. That's making me wonder if, if another difference might not be that that idea of a major label being an essential part of, of becoming known to a wide audience um, might have changed because you can theoretically find that audience now through the internet. And obviously the, the apparatus of a label behind you to get your name out there is still something significant. But, you know, when I was a kid uh, growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, for some weird indie band somewhere to hit my ears, they, they really did have to be anointed by some tastemaker or another. They couldn't just put their music out to be found online. Well, right. There were more gatekeepers in those days. You sort of had to pass through each gate to get to the next level. And now, I mean, really, there's none. You, you just can put out your music. If people find it and they like it, then, you know, you get no noticed and you start streaming and you get signed. It's 
crazy today how many artists we're being um, brought from TikTok. I, I mean, the labels are spending millions of dollars to sign these young artists off TikTok. And <laughs> there's... Who's to say what's going to happen to them? Maybe one in a hundred might actually be a real artist and going to go the distance and have a long career. I don't know. But it's it's a real game of chance right now, trying to figure out which one of these is the one. Seems like the most successful artists, uh, even the, the legacy artists who've been around for a long time, they've found some way to reckon with what the current audience expects, you know which is almost like a steady drip. Yeah, you have to. And you have to keep feeding the beast. You know, it's like you've just got to keep putting out content. That's why I think that, I mean, I really feel like the album is is disappearing because why work so long and so hard on a piece of work, maybe 10, 12 songs, and then it's just gone after the, a week. You release it, people might pay attention, and then they're on to the next. So, I mean, I'm telling uh, my young artists put out singles, put out an EP if you must, but don't don't waste all your great material so that it just disappears. We're we're in a fast moving, fast moving time right now. Well, you made me think about the binge model of television, and a lot of shows now are moving away from that. They're doing the weekly thing again because if you're weekly, you're part of the conversation for two months or something. And if you put out all eight or ten episodes at once, people are done. And I think the idea of going—and I still am an album guy. Like to me, that slab of like thirty-five, forty-five, whatever minutes of stuff I haven't heard by somebody I love. Like to me, that there's never a more cherished moment than that. But as someone who also makes music, I understand that even with that, like you. Even if you construct it that way, you're still thinking about individual songs and you can look at the metrics of plays and downloads and go, yeah, the first four songs on this album got like three or four times the plays of the ones later in the album. And I know it's like, well, just because something's track 12 doesn't mean it should be like ignored. But I do think people, I don't know, I don't want to be like grandpa talking about people's attention spans, but I think it's down to the way we all consume music now. So much of it is to order, you know, that you just dial up the song you want to listen to. And if you end up, you, you I don't know, I, I still listen to albums, but I also understand that that is a particular way of consuming it. So yeah, you're right. It's almost like half the album or two thirds of the album. What used to be like deep cuts and like part of the treasure trove are now kind of like, oh, people might miss those entirely if they're not singles. And then, then why'd you, why'd you put them out? <laughs> <laughs> well, you put them out for that select group of people that actually are fans. Well, it's been instructive to me about just how things change, even when they seem like they're part of the bedrock. Like you would think that the album is this gold standard of what popular music is, you know? And and then you you grow a little older and you realize, oh, wait a minute, maybe I was just witness to the 40-year period where that was the case, where the album was the best way to deliver this stuff mm -hmm. to people. Um, and, you know, obviously people still like albums. Yeah, for sure. There's no reason why that's going to be the, the, the unit of music that people consume um, when they have so many choices now yeah. about how to consume music. Yeah, absolutely. It's a much more all-encompassing, um, I think your artistry has to be, you know, a lot more than just a record. It does have to include the visuals, the social media aspect, the, the marketing aspect, the what brands you align yourself with, what syncs can you get for these songs. I mean, there's just so much more to consider now. To, to be successful. Yeah, well, so but that period where you went from Polygram to Electra, what was that move like? It looks like Peter made the same move, right? Was he was it just the two of you or was there a mass exodus? No, no, it was just the two of us. He he made the move before I did. And um, you know, to be honest with you, Polygram at that time really wasn't a gold star label, in my opinion. It was sort of a B B level label. And uh, Electra was becoming the gold standard for wonderful music of every genre. And, there and so when he went there, I was like, whoa, that's an amazing company. And um, I really was, you know, looking to make a move to, to be more aligned with a company that was more musically interesting to me. 
And uh, fortunately, there was an opening there for another A&R person. Somebody else had left and uh, Peter recommended me. So I was absolutely thrilled to have the opportunity to go there. And it was intimidating to go to Electra because the standards were so high, musically speaking, that you really had to, you, you had to, you know, live up to that. You couldn't bring in talent that was substandard. The guy who ran the company, Bob Krasnow, was a real music fan, and he knew everything about, you know, R&B, soul, jazz, rock, I mean, everything. He just was a music fanatic, so he could tell right away if something was the real deal or not. So, so yeah, it was, it was a challenge there, but that's what made it fun and exciting because everything was worthwhile. You know, there are very few things that I thought, oh, can't believe someone's signing that here. You know, you were very proud of your signings and your colleagues' signings, and we all really supported each other there. Well, the interesting thing was when I was looking at this part of the, you know, the the label's history, I realized that I think, I don't know if I would have noticed at the time because they did have a few of my favorite sort of, as I mentioned, kind of college rock, indie rock, whatever you want, postmodern rock, they called them that for a while. Um, that Those bands were, a few of those were on Electra. But the interesting thing about Electra was that it wasn't like it was just one sound. I mean, Tracy Chapman, Queen, Metallica. Yeah, Queen was a long time Electra uh, on the roster for a long time. Metallica, Motley Crue. Oh, Anita Baker. I mean, we were in every genre, but I think the cream of the crop in every genre, you right. know, here was alternative or R&B or, and then hip hop came in and we were doing great stuff there with Brand Nubian and just all sorts of uh, leaders of the new school, all sorts of great music at Electro. It was exciting. Well, I mean, that must have meant then anything that tickled your fancy could possibly, if it had that kind of real deal substance to it that you're talking about, that you could bring it there, not based on, oh, this is like these other 10 bands that are successful, or, oh, this is like what we already have on the label, but this is another new flavor that we can, you know, bring into our world. Like, it's a it's a two-way street then, because it's like an integrity thing for a label to have a certain band on the label, but it's also obviously been great for for some of these bands. You know, that, that takes a lot, of, a lot of magic in a way <laughs> to make that happen oh yeah you don't want to ever be a follower you want to be a leader and, and musically speaking and so yeah that definitely was the the order of the day you know if it's different and credible and great then yeah bring it on So with that in mind, I mean, what were some of the bands that you brought in? Um, my understanding is you had actually been talking with They Might Be Giants when you were at Polygram, correct? And then kind of brought them over? Yeah, that's correct. I When I went to Polygram in 86 in New York, uh, in Peter had a stack of records in his office that he had yet to listen to. They were just sent to him. And one was very striking to me because the artwork was just fantastic. And it was the first They Might Be Giants album. And so I started listening to it and I became extremely enamored of this music, this smarty pants, you know, alternative rock. It just hit me, you know, like this is everything I love uh, in an artist. So I started going to see them live and they played a lot of gigs. I mean, and in those days you had that, time to actually see bands many times before you had to make a commitment to sign them. And um, I recall that there was really only one other A&R person at the majors interested in They Might Be Giants. And they had been signed to an indie label called Bar None that was in New Jersey. And um, so my, this guy and I would see each other at all these gigs. Um, we became really good friends. And in fact, we're still very, very good friends. And, um, you know, it, I got very close to signing them to Polygram. In fact, I think we even had an offer out when I got the job at Electra. And I went to the manager and, I, and the guys and I said, look, I'm going to be leaving Polygram, but I think you're going to be really happy where I'm going. 
So if you could just hang on, don't sign anything, give me a moment, and then we'll do it at the new place. And that's what happened. So that was the first thing I brought to Electra. And um, when we, they had, so in the meantime, they had that original record and then they had the second album that they made, which was on Bar None. Yeah, Lincoln. Lincoln. And then the next record would be Flood, which was the one that we were making at Electra and hiring Clive Langer and Alan Wynn Stanley to produce some tracks and Alan to mix the record and, and it was Bob Krasnow just loved their cover version of Istanbul, not Constantinople. He just loved it. He called me into his office. And whenever you got called into his office, it was very nerve wracking because why on earth is the chairman asking to see me? And he just wanted to play it and tell me how much he loved it. And we sat there and he listened to it. And so, you know, that was my first signing to, to Electra, And, and uh, the Giants, you know, they did very well. They went to number one on the uh, college radio chart, CMJ. And they went to number one, Birdhouse in Your Soul in the UK, London and, and the UK really took to the band. And they did a lot of touring over there. And um, so, yeah, it was the great first signing for me over there. Well, I'm curious about a couple things there that you mentioned. One is the bringing in of these pop producers, uh, Clive Langer and Alan Winstanley, who had a pretty tr good track record of, you know, very shiny pop records, but also artists like Madness and Elvis Costello, who, if you knew their name, you knew like, oh, it's going to be, it's pop, but it's got this kind of, I don't know, there's an, there's something just great sounding about those records, but those aren't like corny pop acts, you know, those are bands that, that, that had a cool sound. Whose idea was it to pair them with them? Was that was that sort of a label directive to say, we've got these guys in the door, we're going to now find someone who can give them that, that leg up? Or was there an attempt to kind of repeat the success they'd had? I, I know Bill Krause was their producer on the first two albums, and he kind of left the group, I think, at that point because he didn't want to just be their engineer. But, right. I mean, what was that decision like to, like... I mean, I guess I'm getting into kind of the nuts and bolts of you're an A&R person, you bring a band in the door. Obviously, you see something about them that's great, but you're also seeing something about them. Uh, tighten the screws here, make a few suggestions there. The idea was to elevate them to the next the next place. Mm -hmm. And generally, that's what happens. You You look outside of the original inner circle to see who might be a good fit to take you to the next level. And we spoke with many different writers, uh, excuse me, many different producers at that time. Um, I would say um, all of them were in London. I remember making a trip to the UK and just meeting with different people and then having the guys meet with different people. And they were, you know, big fans of Clive and Allen and the work that they had previously done. Now, I would have liked for Clive and Allen to produce the entire album. And John and John were very set on, no, <laughs> we're producing the bulk of the album. They can do four songs. So we settled on that. And to be honest, that's fine, because generally, if you're going to release songs or singles, it's going to be at that three, four song limit. So... So that's what we did. And um, I think they learned a lot working with Clive and Alan. They learned a lot about production. And um, that was invaluable to them. You sign these people because they've got this talent, but you want to keep moving them up the chain and elevating them, musically speaking. And that's, that's why you look outside for professionals, you know, who can help do that, but maintain the integrity of the artist. And I think Clive and Alan were masters at that. Make a little birdhouse in your 
soul Not to put too fine a point on it Say I'm the only bee in your bonnet Make a little birdhouse in your soul most of their records have this feel, but especially the first few, this feeling that they were just like so serious about making a great record that it was like, let's make the best record, you know? And Flood has the feeling of an album where everybody involved was just like, let's just make the best. It's got so many, they're catchy, they're deep, they're full of like weird arrangement things. It's this hybrid of live musicianship and the height of like MIDI and sampled stuff. And it's just like, there's a lot of how'd they do that. And it must've been exciting to be like, okay, we're just giving them a little bit more space to do this thing. It's the greatest feeling you can have when, when, when you see something realized you know when you hear music like you hoping it would sound and uh, when you've given people the resources to live up to their potential i think that's the other thing about signing to a major label i mean bar none was amazing in, in giving the guys the creative space but they didn't have the financial resources to to take them there and so that's what's exciting is when you can put all of this stuff in the pot for good and it works out, you know, and, and people are proud and you're right. I mean, the opening of that album tells you how meaningful that record is to the band and it announces to the world, this is, this is important and this is something we're really proud of. So you better pay attention. Why is the world in love again? Why are we marching I'd never really, you know, heard anything like that before, you know. Right, it's because it's both hilarious and kind of ostentatious, but also yeah. kind of a kind of a a moment of also of real bravado. And then the next thing you hear is Birdhouse in Your Soul, which is like one of their immortal yeah, like brilliant songs, you know. And then like yeah, just a couple songs later you've got Istanbul. It's weird how many people know them mostly for that album. This is absolutely not taking anything away from John and John, but they did have Clive and Alan producing Birdhouse. And I think that, you know, that helped. I really do. And, and I, listen, there's, I love these guys. They're amazing. It's like they're, they're in my life and I hope they always will be. But I do think that it does help sometimes to have some outside influence. But regardless, Birdhouse is just one of those songs. I mean, it's just an incredible song. Well, they joke about how their version was like a minute and a half and didn't repeat the <laughs> chorus or something like that. And that Langer and Winstanley were just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, leave it to the professionals. <laughs> Make a little birdhouse in your soul. Make a little birdhouse in your soul. I don't feel 30. So tell me a little bit about the, the, the way that it came to be that Elvis Costello uh, was in the running to produce Apollo 18, or the album that would become Apollo 18, the, the They Might Be Giants follow-up album to Flood. I mean, I was a huge fan of Elvis Costello, and I knew John and John were fans of Elvis Costello. And to me, it just seemed like the natural thing to do, to reach out to him to see if he might want to work with them. He had come to a gig of theirs in London. He said hi to them backstage. This was me, as the A&R person, just deciding I'm going to reach out to Elvis Costello. Who would ever say no to Elvis Costello? Um and I did. And at the time, his manager was this guy, Jake Riviera, who was extremely difficult, uh, intense human. I feel like he's kind of legendary for being kind of a character, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He is that. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. Anyway, he he got it in front of Elvis and Elvis said, yes, I want to do it. And I was so excited. And I told John and John, Elvis Costello wants to produce your next record. And they absolutely were aghast and freaked out and said, no way, 
we couldn't, we don't want to be in a room with him. We couldn't do that. We don't want to do that. And I was really surprised. I mean, but I couldn't believe it. And this was the day of, I mean, we were sending FedEx letters back and forth to each other, you know, like stating our cases as to why we should, why we shouldn't. You didn't have emojis at your disposal back then to, to communicate. No, we had no emojis, no, no emails, nothing. Anyhow, needless to say, I had to go back to Jake Riviera and say, sorry, not happening. So that was probably one of, that was a big lesson for me, actually. Never assume. Just because somebody's a fan and and this would be like a marquee name, like, oh my goodness. Like, so here we have Birdhouse in Your Soul, p- produced by Langer and Win Stanley, took them to this level. The next record, produced by Elvis Costello, in my mind, would have taken them yet up another level. But, you know, it was a big lesson for me. And um, I apologized and I continually apologized that I did that because I don't want to put them in an awkward position, which it seemed like, you know, they would be turning down. Elvis Costello is not uh, something you want to have to deal with. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that didn't happen. I still wonder what would have yeah, what would been like? It is one of the what ifs, I guess, for me as yeah. a fan of theirs too, and also for Elvis Costello, like the fact that he was up for it. I think years later they played some dates with him at the Beacon Theater in New York. So clearly there was at least peace between the kingdoms, you know. But I, oh, but yeah, I imagine I for him that would have been strange to be like, oh, I thought I was being, you know what I mean? And, and I, I feel for you because I've done that kind of thing before, where you just get the order wrong. It's like if I just asked this person first, I wouldn't have made this little mess for myself but instead it's like oh now i've got two people who might be offended at me so yeah so the other the other artist that i signed to electra that that of course is still going in a cultural phenomenon is fish and um that happened in 1991 and then i got approached by another company uh emi and chrysalis and sbk had all merged to form one company and i got a call asking if i would become the head of anr for chrysalis the chrysalis label and at electra while i had been promoted i started as a manager went to a director became a vice president there were five senior vice presidents above me, all incredible A&R people that I learned from, you know, everybody from Peter Lubin, the aforementioned, to Howard Thompson, the head of A&R, to Tommy LaPuma, to Nancy Jeffries, one of the very first A&R people, along with Carol Childs, who also was an incredible A&R person. So I think for me, I was just thinking on a personal level, for my own growth, it was time to to move on, take a bigger responsibility in in a label, and so I left and I went to Chrysalis, SBK, EMI, whatever it was, which was a disaster. Oh, really? <laughs> How so? <laughs> because they hired me because of the they wanted me to do the things I do. Well, what I did was find things that were left of center that became part of the culture and more mainstream. But every time I tried to sign an artist there, they would say, well, we don't do that. We can't do that. And I'd be frustrated because, well, then why am I here? Because this is what I do. And that's what you said you wanted. I also clashed with the, the, the person who hired me then got elevated to be the chairman of the company and wasn't running day to day. And the person that got promoted to the presidency, and I didn't see eye to eye at all on the on the making of records on how to deal with artists uh, on anything really it was just a very tough time so i i did meet some great people during that time that you know i've encountered through the years and not only on the artist side but on the executive side and um i just after a year of and a half of frustration, I asked them to fire me. I, I just said, I can't 
I just can't do this. I cannot come here every day and be frustrated. Did you at least sign anybody interesting while you were there? I brought one artist in, a young guy at the time called Andy Fortier, Andrew Fortier. He was an incredible songwriter. He still is, and I'm still in touch with him. And now his kids are amazing musical talents. I got assigned a lot of artists they were they had on the label, and I made records with those people. Um, but like I said, I was thwarted every time I wanted to sign somebody. They just didn't understand it musically, and that was so different from being at Electra with Krasnow and Howard Thompson, just completely open-minded about music. So it was tough. So I like to say to everybody, they gave me the worst year of my life and then they gave me the best year of my life because they, they let me go and they paid me off. And I just took time away and uh, did fun stuff like learned how to scuba dive, traveled the world, watched Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Like I did whatever, rollerbladed down to the World Trade Center every day. Like I did anything I wanted to do for about a year. And I kind of woke up one day and I thought, oh my goodness, I don't have a job. Like, this is crazy. It's just this I had been approached by a management company in the UK to rep their producers in, a, in the US. And I was going to start my own producer management company. And the day my stationery arrived, I got a call from Warner Brothers, Reprise Records, asking me if I would interview to become a VP of uh, a Art Reprise. So I went there in 95. Uh, so from 95 to 2000, I worked at Reprise Records and I a and the Bare Naked Ladies they had a big hit called One Week, and we formed a really great working relationship. It's been one week since you looked at me. Cocked your head to the side and said I'm angry. Five days since you laughed at me. You're saying get back together, come back and see me. Three days in the living room. Now, I don't think these bands sound similar, but they are sometimes lumped in together. Fish, Bare Naked Ladies, and They Might Be Giants. Um, and I think it is because... They all use humor to some extent, and maybe there's an iconoclasm or something to the way that they present themselves live in that they may do something interesting with the live show to, uh, to kind of shake things up. But it's all about, to me, puncturing the pomposity of rock music. Um, is that something you seek out? First, I need to say I didn't sign Bare Naked Ladies. They were originally signed by Seymour Stein um, to Sire, and then they got put on reprise, and I became the assigned A&R person for them. But... I do like bands that sort of poke fun at the pomposity of it all and the seriousness of it. But the reason that is, is because in order to poke fun and have fun, you've got to be smart. And I think you have to be able to back it up musically and all of those bands do. I mean, I've signed many artists that aren't in that category. We're just not talking about them. But <laughs> yeah, I personally like that. I like a sense of humor. I like when it something makes me think. Like you, you hear it the first time and you're like, what? <laughs> Did they really say that? And then you listen again and then you have you have a laugh because you know, I mean there's nothing like being surprised and engaged by music and um, I think that yeah I do appreciate that okay, I don't make films but if I did they'd have a samurai gonna get a set of better clubs gonna find the kind with tiny nubs who's on my arms and always flying off the back swing gonna get into my sailor mood cause the cartoonist got the boom and I may babes that make me think 
tell you I wasn't sold when I first met Bare Naked Ladies and they told me the label told me you're gonna now be responsible for them and make their record I looked at them as a poor man's they might be giants I really did I didn't understand the them and then when I got to know them and and really sit down with them and talk and have meals and hear them and see their shows, I realized, no, they're not that at all. They're their own thing, equally intelligent and, you know, funny and musical. And uh, I loved working with them. That was, that's the, that's the other challenge being an A&R person. When you don't sign somebody, you have, and you get assigned to that artist, you have to build a trust. Whereas when you're bringing somebody in, they already trust you. They, that's why they're coming with you. But um, to build a trust is something else entirely, and it's challenging. But those guys were really open-minded, and we really connected on, on a lot of levels musically and what they wanted to achieve. And, and, uh, and we did, and it was fun. And so, yeah, but I do I, do, I like that. I can't help it. Well, in terms of building that trust, um, let's backtrack a little and, and talk about Fish. They were pretty skeptical about being on a major label, weren't they? they? They did not want to sign to a major label. They were not interested at all. They wanted to continue to just forge their own path, not be bothered, just make the music. I mean, talk about musicality. Those guys rehearsed every day for hours they played musical games with each other they just they were really about becoming the best possible musicians they could and a cohesive unit um and so again similarly when i went started following fish around there were no other a and r people or in the crowd and i kept thinking why is no one else here like this is an incredible scene this is amazing music this is it's so different, you know, and, and that's, I guess, why there weren't that many people there. But we really worked hard to sign them because they were so skeptical because they, they weren't, that wasn't their end goal, you know. And um, the thing that did it finally, I do believe, was they came to the office for a meeting. And in, in those days, you would have a record cabinet, it'd be a closet with all the CDs or vinyl of, of all the releases from the label. And so I said, well, why don't you guys, you know, go, go take a look at the, the cabinet and see what you want to take. <laughs> and they opened the cabinet. And I mean, and it's like the history of Electra Records, you know, from the Eagles to, I mean, it was just incredible musicianship staring them in the face. And then I think they thought, oh, we could be in this line, this legacy of, of great talent that had been on this label, this roster. And I think that really might have changed their mind about it. And we left them alone. We, it was clear from the get-go. We're not going to do press. We're not going to do television. We don't want a radio single. We just want what we want. And the manager was a very intelligent young guy. And he negotiated a deal for them because he knew their fan base. He knew how many people would want to buy a record. He negotiated a deal where they got an advance. I did help with the making of the records. They, that was fine with them. It was the promotion part they didn't want a part of. And from the first day we shipped records out, they were in the black. So very smart. And they were not, you know, in they didn't owe anybody anything and and we did slowly along the way talk them into maybe you could go on david letterman maybe uh, you know a single to rock radio wouldn't be the worst thing that happened to you and we did we made little inroads uh tonight is a big night for our next guest they're playing a uh, sold-out show at madison square garden and they're also making their network television debut with us here tonight uh this is their new cd it's called hoist ladies and gentlemen please welcome fish I'm just on the family business. 
the Grateful Dead was still sort of around at that time, but like they were kind of the heir apparent in a lot of ways for a lot of people as far as like this is the band that you follow and that their their live shows really became like it almost became like what people loved about them was this uncapturable thing. So I know there are people that that don't even regard their records as that big of a piece of what they do, but that must also mean they had such a huge like you said, an apparatus outside of the usual channels of, of maybe getting play or getting sales. Well, it was at the time called taping, right? I mean, taping was technically illegal. I mean, no artist wanted anyone making bootlegs of their concerts because they thought that would siphon from the selling of the official records. But Fish understood the more people that recorded these shows shared these tapes the bigger their audience would grow. They, they, and so they, I, I mean, I know we probably had like many heated arguments with them, not myself, but, but people in, you know, sales or whatever, don't do that, it's taking away from the sales. But it's like, no, they had a special section, the tapers section, and you could go there, set up your mic, do your thing, and they were right. That, it, that is, how they grew to become this juggernaut to this day. I mean, you know, <laughs> they play dates. I, I, they'll do two nights at the Hollywood Bowl still, or the many nights at the Forum here in LA, or I mean, the Garden. How about the Baker's Dozen? They did 13 shows at the Garden and didn't repeat one song. Two sets a night. I mean, they're incredible musicians. We've talked about all these big acts. Are there smaller acts or acts that were really near and dear to your heart that that might not be names people have heard? Yeah, yeah, there are. I mean, one that comes to mind immediately was a young kid called Eric Gales. Um, when I was at Electra, I went down to Memphis, Tennessee, and I saw this 16-year-old guitar phenomenon playing left-handed upside down like Hendrix called Eric Gales. And he was in a trio with his brother playing bass and a drummer. And... I couldn't believe this, and he could sing, and I couldn't believe this guy's talent. It was blues. It was blues rock. That's what it was. And um, so I came back to New York, and I was telling Krasnow about it because he loved the blues. And and uh, he said, look, um, the kid's only 16. Now, today, that's like being ancient. <laughs> 16 so many young kids are getting signed but in those days no really didn't happen much and Atlantic Records was very interested in signing Eric so we were the two companies that it was down to and uh he said the kid's 16 and I'm not sure he goes you need to think about this I said well I don't I don't want Atlantic to sign him and then kind of ruin him wasn't atlantic also under the warner brothers yeah label? they were a sister label it was warner brothers warner reprise atlantic and electra so how does that work when it, it's like two arms of the same octopus that are fighting for, for a band well, but we all had different bottom lines we were run as different companies it's not like it were warner and reprise which were two labels under the same company so the Warner Communications Group, later Time Warner, later AOL, Time Warner, owned these labels, but we competed internally all the time. There was nothing. We were separate entities. So yeah, that's how that works. So okay. Atlantic was my competition as Columbia would have been, you know? Anyway, he said to me, look, I want you to go walk around the block and think about this and come back and talk to me. And I thought, okay, he's just brushing me off, whatever. So I went back to my office. I finished out the day. And then the next morning, I got in the elevator, and he got in the elevator. And he's like, hey, I thought you were going to walk around the block and come back and talk to me. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to sign him. So he said, okay, we're going to do it. So 
So we signed Eric Gales, made a really great record in Memphis with some very cool people down there. And, you know, it was one of those tragic tales of a kid just being too young, too immature. And to be quite honest, I mean, our radio promotion team just loved this young kid and they couldn't wait to, you know, introduce him to all the vices in the world. Exactly what I didn't want to happen to him, happened to him. But he's still a very revered guitar player, blues player. I'll, if I'm listening in the car and I'm on a blues channel, I'll, he'll pop up and I'll hear some of his music. So, I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of artists that are not well known, that are amazing talents and uh, didn't happen. It looks like you left Reprise around 2000. Was there anything else about your time there that, that kind of stands out? Uh, and what was it that uh, caused you to move on? No, nothing too much. I mean, I signed a few artists there. A couple of them got a good start, but then nothing really happened, as is generally the case. And um, to be honest with you, I wanted to move to Los Angeles uh, after that time. And I was married and my husband wanted to be back in LA where he was from. And um, so I asked, uh, my contract was up and we were renegotiating another three-year deal for me to stay in New York. And I asked them to move me to LA and they said, well, we don't really need you in LA. We've got plenty of people there. But they agreed for one year to move me to LA. And they were right. They didn't need me in LA. They had too many people here. And then we agreed to part ways. But at the same time, Bare Naked Ladies were freaking out because, I mean, honestly, I was the first really in our person they had that gave them time and attention and care with the music. And so they, Reprise hired me as a consultant to make the Bare Naked Ladies next record, Maroon. And then um, Warner Brothers hired me as a consultant to make a Bette Midler record. And, and so I sort of got into this A&R consulting thing, which actually was the perfect sort of job for me at that time. I had just had a child and I could work from home and make these records. And then I got a consulting job at Capitol Records where they, I worked with Shelby Lynn making a record with her and Dave Cause making a record with him. All these people that were signed that didn't have in-house A&R. And then Hollywood Records hired me and I started helping them find songs for like their tweens. And uh, so I went through this period of nine years of working for myself, independent. Um, and I started managing some writers and producers and a couple of artists. And um, during that time, I got a phone call from ASCAP, which is the uh, performing rights organization in the U.S., the two primary ones are ASCAP and BMI, but there are a couple others. And uh, they asked if I would want to interview to be their head of pop rock membership. And I just thought, well, that's such a weird place, ASCAP, you know, like, what? Okay, I'll talk to you. At the time, my daughter was nine. So I'm sitting there going, I guess I could work full time again. But anyway, so I went to ASCAP. And it was an incredible four years of my life because I got to really understand the, the songwriter. You know, all those years I worked with artists and most of them were all self-contained. We never looked for outside songs. Occasionally they would want to do a cover or something like that, but that was not because they weren't capable of writing. It was for fun. And at ASCAP, I got to know all these songwriters I got to understand what it was to be a songwriter, to know that really the, the entire music business rests on the songwriter. If there's not a song, nothing happens. And yet the songwriters are most dismissed. They're not, they're not fairly compensated for their work. And, and, um, and it was fun there because I got to do a lot of different things, put on events and host 
panels and moderate things and put on uh, the ASCAP Expo, which is a phenomenal few days for budding songwriters to learn the craft and the business. And um, so it ended up being a really great, great place for me. And then I got a, um, when you work there, songwriters are your constituency, but so are all the music publishers. So you get to know everybody at all the publishing companies. And uh, the head of Cobalt had reached out and said, you know, I'd love you to come work at Cobalt. And at the time I was negotiating my contract at ASCAP to become the head of membership for all genre. And then there was this, so an ASCAP's a hundred year old organization, right? And then Cobalt was 13 years at the time and a real disruptor in the music publishing business. And it was really exciting to me to think about going to this company that was so different and changing things for the better for the songwriter, you know? And uh, so I decided I would leave ASCAP and go to Cobalt. And um, so now I've been at Cobalt seven and a half years. That feels like a really natural progression in a way. Like you were picking up this appreciation for the songwriter and then the next logical step is like, okay. I mean, you do seem like there's a little bit of a restlessness in, oh, in terms yeah. in terms of what's interesting you though. I mean, it's all part of the same thing. It's like the, you're still in the middle of a, the, the wheel <laughs> of music, but you have been on all these different spokes. Does it really even seem like A&R people, like as you knew them when you started, does that even really exist in the industry anymore? Um, does it even seem like the same landscape at all to you? It's not, it's not the same business at all um, because of all these other sources. You know, A&R has become way more research driven. When I was getting out of the business, companies were starting to hire, a few companies were starting to hire one or two people to do research. They would call record stores, what's selling? But now research, of course, is researching what's happening on streaming and the internet and YouTube. And, and that's really what A&R has become, in my opinion. And honestly, you, you wouldn't want to sign a total unknown to a label because they just get lost. They wouldn't get their shot. They do need to have some sort of substance behind them before they should be brought into that system. It's not one album, two album, three album, you're ready to go. It's not that anymore. So yeah, it's not the same. But you know, there are really great A&R people out there. And I really appreciate them. And, and they're people that you can talk to. A lot of them are looking for songs. I mean, the... There's a few incredible artists that still write their own music, but a lot of it is collaboration. Even really great people that can write their own music are collaborating. You know, it just, because the stakes are high too. It's just the business changed a little bit. Things got bought by major corporations. Major corporations look for profit. It's more quarterly than it is, oh, let's take a five to 10 year look at our business and see how we're gonna get there. It's not that, it's like, you've got to bet, be successful. So yeah, it's different. And I'm glad I had that era. And I'm glad now that I have what I have and um, working with writers and, and running a team and mentoring people. That's really fun for me just to take young executives at the company under my wing and help them become, you know, better at what they do. I spoke to uh, Valina Vigo, who's the booker for the 40 Watt Club and has been for like 30 years um, and manages Camper Van Beethoven and Cracker. And she had said that the way that she stays current is she she knows better than to think that she still has her ear to the rail like she used to. When she started booking, she knew what was happening. And now she has, she says, just younger people, but she says they are going online more now and like scouring, you know, but like it's the same concept of like what's what's both fully realized and out there ready for the right for the picking but also you can see the little room to grow you can see where they would benefit from from being you know given a a, a boost or a, a, on a bigger platform because not every band's going to survive that that transition but the ones that can you kind of have to have an eye for it or you have to have an eye for people who have an eye for it 
That's exactly right. <laughs> I think it was David Geppen who announced when he turned 40 that he could no longer, he could no longer identify talent. It just, <laughs> he, it was too over for him. <laughs> and he needed other people to do it. I'm over 40. What is it that happens to us that makes us, we, we just more accepting of slower tempos? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I don't feel that way. And I'm much older than that. So um, I, uh, I still enjoy that. It's still the most exciting thing to me is to find a young talent and to help help them along. That's just like the best, you know? And um, I have an artist that I signed. Uh, she was just turned 18, I think. Maybe she was 17, 18. Her name is Mia Gladstone. Signed her a few years ago. She's 20 or 21 now. And... Um, the girl is just so talented, but now she's getting recognition. Apple Music's put her on, you know, ones to watch, and Spotify keeps putting her on either New Music Friday or the Lorem playlist, and, and it's like you can see it starting to happen, and it's really exciting to watch that. Um, when you see a young person sitting on your couch playing music from their computer, you know, to actually, oh, people, people are following you. They know who you are. They're, you know, so that's exciting to me. That's awesome. I mean, and at Cobalt, where you are now, um, the it's it, there's a lot going on there. That not only are you working with songwriters to try to pair them with the right venue, maybe for their work, but also there's this amazing roster of like people whose catalog is repped by Cobalt at this point. Yes. Do you have any particular like success stories or big things that have happened like that, that that seem worth mentioning to you? Or do you mostly work with the songwriters? Is, is that more your bailiwick? I mostly work with the songwriters. I have brought Catalog into Cobalt. I brought Lionel Richie into Cobalt, so that was a pretty good one. And yeah, He's no slouch. He's no slouch. He's a 100 percenter, right? He writes everything. I'll bring Catalog in when it comes my way. I'm not out there looking for it. My my, I feel like my job is more to find talented artists and writers that are in the current scene, making music now, uh, creating now, and, uh, and, and running the team, of course. That, that takes up a lot of bandwidth when you have a lot of people reporting to you and you need to give everyone their time. Um, but the other thing I've done recently in the last four-ish four years is I've gotten more involved in the musical theater space, which is something I always loved as a young person and through my life. And um, I signed these two young guys called Benj Pasek and Justin Paul. When they were just, I had met them when I was at ASCAP. They were young musical theater writers just getting their feet wet. And then they came to see me and they were auditioning to write the music for The Greatest Showman. They were potentially going to be the lyricists for La La Land. They had a show off Broadway called Dear Evan Hansen that was going to go to Broadway but hadn't yet. And we signed them. And then, honestly, within the span of a year to 18 months, they'd won an Oscar, multiple Tonys, multiple Grammys. It was an, it's an incredible story. And, um, it's the Sue Drew bump, right? I mean, that's what got him there. Oh, yeah, that's it. I like my parents. Who says that? I love my parents, but each day's another fight. If I stop smoking drugs, then everything might be all right. Smoking drugs. Just fix it. If I stop smoking crack. Crack? If I stop smoking pot, then everything might be all right. Anyway, but so now I'm really focused on that. It, I call it my side hustle in my own gig because I happen to love it. And I think we've got some really great, we've got some incredible people that have been doing it for a little while. And then I'm signing a lot of developing young musical theater talent and just waiting for that day when we can all gather again in person at a, in a theater. But um, 
these people are really capable of writing music for film and TV as well, because they know how to tell stories. So that's kind of exciting. When you, when you find somebody like this and they have their lane in the Broadway space, but then they're capable of maybe writing an end title, that's really fun. And our sync team can have fun with them, giving them opportunities. So that's, that's kind of what I'm enjoying personally right now. Well, I mean, honestly, it's just so cool to know that people working in that side are as 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 excited about the music as you are. You know, I mean, I'm sure that not everybody maybe who works, I'm sure there are some some bean counters and some bottom line folks, but it's it's been great. And, it, you know, just to realize, like I said, that to make it all work, there's people at every step of the way who really believe in in the music itself. And uh, I mean, that, that kind of seems like you're a lifer in, in regards to that. I think the music business gets under your skin for sure. It's very hard to get away from it, even if you try. But certainly at Cobalt, I will tell you, it's a very music-driven company. And our sync team in particular, they just love it. They're at, when, when times are normal, they're out at gigs every night. They're listening to everything. They're, they're so enthusiastic. It's... Um, it makes me feel good to sign people there because I know that they're going to be given the time and consideration. And uh, so, yeah, it's fun to be around people that love music, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I want you to know, I admire also what I consider to be a kind of a tough mindedness to hang in there for, during the years you've been working. I mean, honestly, to stay current and stay relevant, it's got to be, I mean, it's cool when an artist does it. I think it's probably pretty cool when a when an A&R person does it too. So thank you so much uh, for, for sharing your, uh, your story with me. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Any parting words, any thoughts, like, you know, life motto, anything like that you'd like to say? <laughs> I don't have a life motto. I think just, you know, get up every day and do the best you can do and be as good a person as you can possibly be. I really think that's key. I, I will say every job I've gotten has been because somebody has recommended me. Sometimes I didn't know them well at all. And uh, it's like, okay, I think being a good person pays off. So I just leave you with that. But I really appreciate your time. It was lots of fun. was Sue. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. If you want to follow this podcast and find other ones like it, just remember they're all on the FYIZ podcast feed. Just search for those four letters, FYIZ, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you subscribe, you'll get new episodes of Playing Records with John, as well as all of the sister and brother shows that make up the FYIZ empire. Um, as for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Gianni W, G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. And that's all for now. More coming up. Some really fun episodes of Playing Records with John are just around the corner. So stay tuned. And, uh, you know, for God's sake, leave a nightlight on. <laughs>